Welcome to the Assembly at Hetfield Place podcast. I'm Lucy Hislop, curator of this eclectic programme of year-round events. A gentle Georgian home in Hampshire with 438 acres of woodland, lakes and gardens, Heckfield has always been a place to bring interesting and interested people together. Continuing this legacy, the Assembly calls on curious minds with a focus on looking forward and on our relationship with nature. Each episode features an edited conversation with our guests. Listen in this episode to the sage advice of Satish Kumar, a former monk and long-term peace and environment activist, on decluttering our lives from material possessions and from psychological baggage, an exploration into biodynamic farming, a practice that Heckfield follows, and the art of living well as captured in his new book, Elegant Simplicity. All join me in um, welcoming to the stage Satish Kumar. Thank you very much for such warm welcome. And it's a great pleasure to be here in this wonderful uh, place, Heckfield Place, and uh, biodynamic farm emerging. Such a great garden uh, I went to visit, wonderful Good food is growing, and uh, <clears throat> I, well, as I was walking along the garden, I was thinking that when people ask so many big problems in the world, climate change, Brexit, Biodiversity diminishing, plastic problem, our oceans are full of plastic. Where do we start if we find some solution or want to participate in some kind of solution to create good life for everybody? Where do we start? And as I was walking, looking at the vegetables, I was thinking that I think the elegant simplicity starts with our food. If we can get our food right, all the other things will be added to it. Because every day we have to eat two or three times a day. And if we look at our food, where has it come from? how it was grown, how it was sold, how it was packaged, how it was cooked, and how much time we have to eat, and how much mindfulness and attention we give to our food. If you ask all those questions, all our environmental, our social, our spiritual questions are there in that food. We all need to eat, we have to eat, but very few of us are interested in touching the soil. 
We don't know really where our food is coming from. Many of you here may be exception, living in the countryside. Maybe you are more familiar to our farms, more familiar to our gardens. But people who live in big cities like London, Paris, New York, Beijing, Delhi, Calcutta, big, big cities, people have lost connection and contact with our food. So I would start the idea of my book, Elegant Simplicity, with the idea of food. And I would like to see, like this place here, beginning to create organic, local, indigenous, and going very much ahead, very far, more radical, biodynamic. This was a wonderful vision of a great prophet of our time, Rudolf Steiner. He was truly a great prophet. And he had a vision about the kind of medicine we have, natural medicine. Beleda is kind of Rudolf Steiner-inspired brand. Architecture, Rudolf Steiner had a wonderful image of architecture, how beauty can be brought into our architecture, and organic forms. Money, Rudolf Steiner had a wonderful ideas about money. Money as a means to an end and not the end. Means of exchange, but not the real wealth. The real wealth is our land, our trees, our water, clean river flowing. And human skills, our two hands, which can transform ordinary into extraordinary. That was Rudolf Steiner's vision. That you take a piece of clay of little monetary value, very ordinary, but its potential is so great that with our two hands and our imagination and our creativity and our love, we can transform that little piece of clay into a beautiful pot, a great potter like Bernard Leach, turning that clay into a pot. That is real wealth. Theodor's bank in Holland and Germany and Bristol, some of you know, promoting the organic, environmentally friendly activities, farming, renewable energy, and so on. That was Rudolf Steiner's vision. He was an early environmentalist. And the most important thing he did, he gave something like 10 lectures on agriculture. And of course, his education, Rudolf Steiner, Waldorf education, is very well known and famous. But his 10 lectures on agriculture are, I think, the most amazing, most visionary, most fundamental philosophy of our connection with the land, 
with the soil. Our, we are humans. The word humans in Latin comes from humus. Humus means soil. So human beings are literally soil beings. Our body is nothing but soil transformed. And the delicious apples and potatoes and carrots and tomatoes, all the fruit, all the grain that we eat is soil transformed. If you look at it mindfully, when you plant one seed of an apple tree in the ground, that one seed, tiny seed, that little apple pip, is too bitter to eat. But it has the tree in it. But that tree can only come out in relationship with the soil. The great tree is in, in it. But when you put it in the soil, then you never see that seed again. It has surrendered its ego, its separateness to the soil. And the soil gives its energy with the help of a bit of sun and a bit of rain. If rain is plenty in England, but a bit of sun when we get it, like today, we were very lucky to have wonderful, wonderful, I was very fortunate to come to Hackfield Place in this beautiful weather and walk in the garden. And that seed becoming plant. And the trunk, trunk is nothing but soil and carbon transforming itself into a trunk. And the branches and the beautiful leaves. And then soon you will see those apples. I have 15 apple trees in my garden, a beautiful orchard. And I see the blossom transformed into small apples, green apples, but now they are getting red. And soon they will be juicy, fragrant, delicious, healthy, healing food for our body. But those apples, so tasty, so delicious, so amazing, so wonderful, are nothing but soil transformed. And so those who work on the land, who cultivate the soil, need our respect. We think that if you are stupid, if you are not clever, if you are not bright, then you go and work on the land. But if you are bright and clever and educated, Oxford, Cambridge, big, big universities, Bristol, Edinburgh, then you don't touch the soil. Our farmers say to their sons, boys, girls, and daughters, 
go to university, get a good job, earn some money in the city, in the bank, some big corporation, some government job. Farming is no good. Only 2% of people in Britain are on the land. And 98% of people live on their sweat, in their on their labor. And if you are a farm worker, laborer, and you get 100 pounds a day as your wages, minimum wages, you'll be lucky. But if you are working in the city, in a bank, or in some corporation, you get 1,000 pounds a day, 2,000 pounds a day, 5,000 pounds a day. We have diminished the respect, the value, the, the importance of working on the land. Farmers cannot make a good living by working on the land, even if you have 500, 1,000, 2,000 acres of land. So, Rudolf Steiner's 10 lectures on agriculture is to bring our attention to the idea that land is the real wealth. The soil is our real wealth. The money you have in your bank account, on your credit card account, is only an idea of wealth, only a measure of wealth. You can measure this wonderful, amazing building and say it's 10 or 20 or whatever 50 million pounds worth of building. But the building is the wealth, not the pounds that you have. That's only a means to exchange, means to an end. So this land, nature is real wealth. The forests are not just timber, they're living, living beings, living forest. Soil is not just dirt, dirty dirt. <coughs> so dirt is not dirty. Dirt is the source of life. We have started to measure our, our forest, our land, nature, in terms of monetary value. Ecosystem services, they call it in their jargon. We put monetary value. But nature is beyond value, monetary value. Nature is priceless. And so having a farm, biodynamic farm at your doorstep here is something to remember. It has a significant value. And all our land in Britain should be farmed or gardened, if not farmed, gardened with love, with care. And I would like to see all of us spending at least some time, and I'm sure many of you are gardeners, some time working on the land and producing food. It's a great joy and pleasure for me. I am so fortunate 
that I have two acres of land and I love gardening. And when I'm preparing my lunch my, with my wife, June, we go in the garden and see what is there. That's our larder. And oh, today spinach is there, or broad beans are there, or runner beans are there, or sweet corns are ripening, or we have harvested potatoes. We bring the fresh, organic vegetables. That's the greatest luxury for us, bringing that vegetable in the kitchen and preparing and cooking together, husband and wife working together. That's a very good, relation, good thing for relationship. No need to argue between husband and wife. My wife and I, we have been together for 48 years. And I think one of the reasons that we are together, the glue which is holding us together is our garden. We both work on the land and grow vegetables and flowers, and fruit. And we make apple juice soon. Time to make apple juice. Fresh, delicious apple juice. All handmade. You don't have to think of machines, electric machines to make your juice. Handmade with a little, little wheel you have. Chop the apples and put it in there. And I'm sure many of you have seen that hand-driven little wheel which makes you. And if you have not drunk that fresh apple juice coming from your orchard, you don't know what apple juice really means. <laughs> and so, for me, elegant simplicity is how we get in touch with our food. If you don't have time to cook, if you don't have time to garden, you don't have time to live. Life is not about emails or social media or computers or driving cars or flying in the aeroplanes. All that is icing on the cake. It's all fine. You can have a computer, you can have your Facebook, you can have your cars, you can have your television. All those are fine. But they are only icing on the cake. The cake is nature, trees, forests, rivers, land, soil, food, craftsmanship. Making things beautiful. Beauty is nourishing the soul. In our modern world, we have become too functional. Everything is functional. Utilitarian. But in our traditional British system of craftsmanship, when they made beautiful cabinets and beautiful furniture and beautiful cottages, they built houses which were so elegant and beautiful. Why our modern humanity is starved spiritually because we have lost contact with beauty. But when you put beautiful food on the table of so many wonderful colors, green and red and, 
and, and orange and all the colors on the table. It's a work of art. Garden is the greatest work of art. Monet created garden to paint water lilies. Which is the great work of art when you go to Paris and you visit Orangery and see his, his uh, lilies, beautiful lilies, but they will not be there without Monet's garden. You go and admire Van Gogh's sunflowers. Some investors put 30, 40, 50 million dollars and pounds to buy paintings of Van Gogh. But they are all inspired by nature. What is the real work of art? Van Gogh's sunflower framed on the wall? Or the real sunflowers in the garden? But we don't pay any attention to the real sunflowers. We just look at the museums. I'm a I'm great admirer of Van Gogh. Don't mistake me. That's a great meditation that he was doing by looking at the sunflower and having a spiritual connection. That imagination, that creativity, that soulfulness, that sense of beauty that he was creating. Wonderful. I want you all to be artists like Van Gogh. And we can be. We can be. Because as I said, growing sunflower is also a work of art. And everyone should be an artist. We should live like an artist and create beauty. An artist is not a special kind of person. But every person, every one of us, is a special kind of artist. Please remember this. An artist is not a special kind of person. But every person is a special kind of artist. Can you live like an artist? Great scientists of our time who invented the idea and theory of, J uh, of uh, Gaia. Gaia, James Lovelock. He is a good friend of mine. He was the first teacher at Schumacher College. And he said in his teaching, he said, I practice science like an artist. Wonderful statement. I was once in Australia. I went to visit an Aboriginal village, a community. And I asked people, what is your livelihood here? How do you make living? And you know what they said? We are all artists. Can you find me one village in Britain where you go and ask, what is your livelihood? And people say, we are all artists. I cannot imagine finding such village in England or in France or Germany or America. We think these Aboriginal people are backwards. They're civilizing. But their art and their way of life and everything they make, their shoes, their arrows, their clothes, their bodies, they paint. 
work of art. I have written about this in my book. Creating a society of artists and craftsmanship and beauty. If we live with beauty, we can solve the problems of climate change. Climate change is happening because of the ugly civilization that we have created. By polluting our rivers, polluting our air, polluting our environment, emitting the carbon, the soil is the greatest sequestrator of carbon. We have forgotten that. And so, if we can bring simplicity, elegant simplicity in daily life, everyday life, how we live like an artist and imagination. The four physical elements, earth, air, fire, water. And the fifth non-physical, metaphysical, non-material element, and that is imagination. And imagination is something so precious, so special, so important, so wonderful, and yet everybody is given. You don't have to go to Marx and Spencer or John Lewis to buy imagination. All of you, all of me, all of us, young, old, rich, poor, black, white, man, woman, farmer, banker, whoever you are, every one of us have been endowed, gifted by imagination. But our industrial education, industrial way of working, farming, production, all that hardly allows us to cultivate and use our imagination. You go to big, big universities like Oxford, Cambridge, Bristol, Edinburgh, Paris, all these big universities. We all learn academic knowledge, stale yesterday's knowledge. Libraries are full of books. Wonderful, I love books. I write myself. But how much time and space and opportunity a student has to cultivate his or her own imagination? When people write PhD thesis, they're all, half of the book is references. They read everybody's work and references. Okay, that's all fine. But I would like to see a greater respect and cultivation of imagination. And nature is imagination itself. William Blake said it. Nature is imagination itself. And we are nature. Nature is not just out there. The trees, the mountains, the rivers, the birds, the animals. We are also nature. This idea of separation between humans and nature 
Rudolf Steiner would not approve. Trees are made of same elements, earth, air, fire, water, and imagination, as William Blake said. And there's a great, now the great exhibition of William Blake's work at the Tate. So, a tree is made of earth, air, fire, water, and imagination, and Satish Kumar is made of earth, air, fire, water, and imagination. What is the difference? Why the separation? And the moment we make separation, we say, now tree is just something for my use. Only worth a few hundred pounds. So the value of nature is considered by us only in terms of nature's usefulness to humans. It's a very anthropocentric, it's a very human-centered worldview that we have created. Whereas with William Blake and Monet and Van Gogh and Shakespeare, all the great romantic poets and artists, for them, nature has intrinsic value. For the industrial society, nature is a resource for the economy. But for our great spiritual masters and poets and artists, nature is a source of life. William Blake says, tongues in trees. Trees speak. Listen to trees. They may not speak English, but they speak tree English. Listen to trees. When somebody says, I speak to trees, they say, oh, you are wishy-washy, flaky, new-agey person. Prince Charles talks to trees, I'm told. And people, the media, Telegraph and Times would say, oh, Prince Charles is a flaky, new-age person. But Shakespeare was not a flaky, new-age person. And he said, tongues in trees. And books in running brooks. The, the, the river is not only a, a water so that we can pollute them with our sewage, like Thames and, and other rivers, to take our sewage away. They are living books. Books in running brooks and sermons in stones. Can you imagine the wonderful ecological and natural consciousness that Shakespeare had? We only go to Shakespeare for his kind of words and, and his plays to just see the kind of intrigue, intrigue of, of, of language. But there is a tremendous wisdom ecological wisdom in Shakespeare when he says sermons in stones. Stones teach us resilience, endurance. We can learn. You don't have to go to the church on Sunday. Just go to... I, I'm, I live in North Devon and I go and sit on the rocks, on the cliffs and I listen to the stones. I was interviewed by Richard Dawking. And I said, Mr. Dawking, do you know the stones have spirit? He's a scientist, but no. Very reductionist. And so 
and good in everything. This is the last line of that particular dialogue that Shakespeare says. Tongues in trees, books in running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. Everything has a place in this universe. Rumi says, there's a field beyond right and wrong, meet me there. How wonderful that the Sufi poet Rumi and this English poet Shakespeare, they have a similar vision. So this is a kind of what I call this inner simplicity, the spiritual simplicity. If we, are, if we stop being crooked-minded and think straightforward with nature as our teacher and imagination as our inner strength and resource and the source of our, all our work, imaginative lifestyle, living imaginatively with imagination at every moment, then I would call that inner spirituality, inner simplicity. So we need outer simplicity and we need inner simplicity. And beauty for me, as I said, is very essential part of that, that simplicity. And my mother used to add few more things about simplicity to beauty. Say, she used to say, you have nothing like, like William Morris. She was a similar thinker. Have nothing in your house, in your kitchen, in your, in your office, anywhere in your house, nothing which is not beautiful. And second, my mother would say, beauty is good, necessary, essential, fundamental, but not enough. Beauty should also be useful. So there is no distinction or separation between beauty and utility. Beautiful and useful should be at the same time. A house should be beautiful. A chair should be beautiful. A carpet should be beautiful. Shoes should be beautiful. Clothes should be beautiful. Why the separation? The beauty is for decoration on the wall and you wear ugly clothes and ugly shoes and ugly chairs, all factory made, and mass produced, a plastic or something, something. Why? You put beautiful things on the wall and ugly things on your body. So my mother would say, did say, beauty and utility, usefulness should be same at the same time. And a third, which although at the time when my mother lived, there was a no ecological movement or ideas of ecological consciousness, but she had the idea, like Mahatma Gandhi had the idea. With common sense and wisdom. And she said, the third thing should be that whatever you make, whatever you have, should be durable, last, not throw away society. Single-use plastic, single-use this, single-use that, one fashion clothes you buy for this um, fa season, fashionable season, style. Next season, gone. Buy new clothes, buy new shoes. By new everything. My mother would say, things should last for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, lifetime, and next generation. Your children should inherit your clothes, beautiful clothes. Why not? Your children should inherit your sofa and your chairs and their children. 
Things should be made to last, antique value. So beautiful, useful, durable. These are the three words. I call it my mother's bud principle. B-U-D. Beautiful, useful, durable. B-U-D. Bud. If we can have our lives simple, outside and inside, less clutter, less unnecessary ugly things, just accumulating in our wardrobes full of clothes we don't wear, our attics full of boxes and full of things which we buy and don't use, our kitchens, our office spaces, everything should be looked at. Have I used it for one year or two years? If I have not used for one year, two years, perhaps I should give it to Oxfam shop. Somebody can use it. Why I have to just keep it in my house? So that elegant simplicity is a prerequisite for a sustainable society and sustainable future. If we go on turning nature into mass-produced goods, more and more and more production, churning, these factories are churning out more and more goods and shops are full of these goods, selling them. You go to London, too many shops selling same thing, same bags, same clothes, same this, everywhere. And they have so much, they can't sell it. So every season they have a sale, spring sales, winter sale, summer sale. Why do you make so much? It's a nature. Nature is precious. We are polluting nature by producing and not using them. We could do with less but better. Less but more beautiful. Less but more useful. Less but more friendly. Art of living well on less is elegant simplicity. We want elegance, we want beauty. We want imagination. We don't want stuff too much. That's my sort of idea. But I'm also talking a lot of other things in this book. I'm talking about forgiveness. I'm talking about love. I'm talking about relationship. I'm talking about soil, soul, society. I'm talking about science and spirituality. All those, the simply elegant simplicity is a big vision. Because for me, just criticizing the government is not enough. Criticizing the industry is not enough. Criticizing the corporate world. You are bad. You are polluting. You are wasting. You are creating global warming. You are creating climate change. You are uh, producing plastic. All this is criticism is not enough. We have to have a positive solutions. And in that positive solution, each and every one of us can participate. Each and every one of us can start with our own lives. So if we can do that, then I think we can be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Because we cannot just blame and complain and criticize the industry, the corporations, the governments, and so on consumerism and materialism, as if it was there, somebody else is doing it, I'm not responsible. We all have to take that responsibility 
and be the change that we want to see in the world, as Mahatma Gandhi said. So uh, I hope you get a copy of this book, read it, enjoy it, but more than that, hopefully, some of it put in practice. Thank you very much. So we have some time for questions. Absolutely. So, I just want to thank you so much for sharing. Um, you've enlightened me in this short period of time. I, I, I know this sounds um, sort of out of the box, but I believe that, I just want to reiterate the fact that I believe that stones and, and rivers and trees have stories to tell, and I do believe that they tell us stories. Um, on a total side note, I believe spoons <laughs> tell stories. I believe that in every home, in a kitchen where there are time-worn spoons next to someone's stove, they have stories to tell. That the second you pick up a spoon, <clears throat> you create the stories for your home, for your family. And I believe that nature and nurture do have to work as one. And I, I'm so grateful and I'm, to be here and to read your book. And I think you have beautiful things to say. And, and lastly, I just want to leave with the idea of, of imagination. should always be never questioned but cherished. And... You said it so beautifully, so I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, yeah. Thank you very much for that comment. Um, I've been very fortunate um, because, first of all, my mother brought me with some wonderful ideas and stories and, and songs. She was a, a good singer, and, and she was a great gardener. She had four acres. And, and, uh, and, and two cows. So she milked with her hands like this, no machine, and made butter and, and, uh, and made yogurt. And, uh, and, and she will take me walking to the garden. garden our, our small farm, you can call it, uh, four acre farm, was a, a kind of half an hour walk away from our home, like an allotment type of thing. And so, um, she will take me walking and she will never ride any, although we had a horse, we had a camels in our home in Rajasthan, uh, but she will never ride on a horse or a camel. She will take me walking. And as we were walking, she will teach me about trees and bees and the, the wild bees on the tree. And she will say, these bees go from flower to flower take a little nectar here, a little nectar there. Never ever a flower has complained that honeybee took too much nectar away. And when they take the nectar, they transform it into sweet, delicious, healing honey. That's the kind of lesson we have to learn from bees. How many humans can do that? We take things from nature, use it and throw it away. Pollute. Bees never pollute. Bees never waste. So that kind of teaching I had from my mother. So I was very fortunate to be brought up by my mother. I honor her. And then I became a monk for nine years. And that was another training of Jain monk, living simply and how little you need really to, to live well and, and have more time. At the moment, our society is uh, time poor. We don't have time for things. But my mother would say, we have plenty of time. When God made time, he made plenty of it. 
There's no shortage of time. Because if you don't have to sort of um, work, 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 to earn, earn, earn more, more money, and then you buy, 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 and, and accumulate, accumulate, then you have no time for yourself, for your children, for your husband, for your wife, for your partner, for your girlfriend, for your friends. So I suggest that we in our society start to work three, or three days a week part-time and have more time for ourselves and our friends. So I was very lucky to have that kind of bringing up in my childhood. Any other question, please, here. How can we restore the balance? A bit closer. How can we restore the balance and the respect for uh, the fellow creatures that we share this planet with? Because How do you restore the respect yes, for fellow we, creatures? We, we seem yeah. to take so much and we, we lose so much when yeah. we lose the recognition of respect and value of other life forms. Yeah. And yeah. we place ourselves so, so far and high above other life forms. Yeah. So um, how, this is a kind of, first of all, we have to change our attitude to nature, to our fellow creatures. Attitude, our mindset, our worldview. If we look at our fellow creatures and see them as inferior to humans, then our relationship with those fellow creatures will be very different. But if we say that life has millions and trillions and trillions of forms, and all forms are equally important. So the moment you change that mindset, your behavior towards fellow creatures, animals and insects and birds and, 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 and trees, all our, uh, I'll change. So from this idea of anthropocentric worldview, human-centered worldview, where humans are the higher species and separate from nature, and all the other species are there for our use, in our service, that attitude changes the moment you say, we are not separate. We are one. We are nature. We are soil beings. We are human beings, are soil beings. And we are nature. The moment you have that unity of life. So the, the, how to do it is first change our worldview, change our attitude to nature. The moment you change your attitude, then your behavior will change. And then you will respect the animals and trees and, and earthworms. I always say, respect the earthworms, because earthworms work under the soil for the gardeners 24-7. They never take any holiday. They never ask for wages. They never go on strike. And we don't be the earthworms or nothing. One earthworm, according to science, scientists, one earthworm turns six tons of soil in its lifetime and we don't pay any attention. So our attitude to our fellow creatures changing, this is called deep ecology. Not shallow ecology, but deep ecology, meaning every creature on this planet has intrinsic value, not only human rights, but rights of nature, rights of all living beings. Every living being has a right to live. It's a creation, it's a creation, it's, Almighty has created, universe has created. So, so we have to respect the creation. 
So the moment we change our attitude, our behavior will change. Our behavior will not change unless we change our attitude. And this is why at Schumacher College, we teach deep ecology, we teach Gaia. Earth is a living organism. If we say Earth is a dead rock and the trees have no life and the animals feel no pain and they are inferior there, they are only there for us to sort of use for ourselves. The moment you have that attitude, your behavior will be that kind. But the moment you change your attitude, your worldview, your philosophy, and you say life is one, manifesting in millions and billions and trillions of forms, the diversity, not division. At the moment, we see division, not diversity. So we shift from division to diversity, and then from diversity beyond what we see from two eyes, with the third eye, and I've written that in my book, the third eye, we see the unity of life. All humanity is one. All living beings are one, just manifesting in trillions and trillions of forms. That attitude change will change the behavior. Okay, any other question? Yes. Yes, please. Um, hi. Um, at the beginning of your talk, you mentioned about climate change. And yeah. I think that's something that concerns people more and more nowadays. Yeah. And um, so if you had to have a choice of what would have the most impact um, in, in helping to arrest the changing climate, whether it would be having a plant-based diet or renewable energy, which, which would, I mean, obviously you go for both, but if you had to choose between the two, <laughs> which one would you go for? Difficult choice, but I would choose plant-based diet. Although the renewable energy and plant-based diet, both are complementary and we can do both. We don't have to do only one, but plant-based diet or largely, if not entirely, largely I'm completely vegetarian. But if you have to eat meat, reduced amount and largely 80 to 90% of your diet should be plant-based because the amount of water, the amount of energy, the amount of electricity we have to use to maintain these millions and millions of um, cows and pigs and everything around the world. And in order to feed them, we have to grow the amount of food which have to be um, given to these animals. And then um, the kind of the kind of energy we use and the, the kind of methane gas they produce, if you put all together, about 30 to 40% of our greenhouse gases are emitted by our factory farming and, and animal farming and meat farming system. So the water, energy, um, greenhouse gases, uh, all those things, if you put together, I think the best contribution we can make to mitigate the climate crisis, I think, will be plant-based diet. But of course, we don't have to choose. We can also put solar panel on all roofs of our houses and buildings and uh, universities and colleges and schools and hospitals and factories and shops and all the buildings we have. If we put solar panels on top, there's no uh, nothing lost. And, and we are getting energy decentralized. Uh, we're making energy on our own home. So we don't have to choose it. And then um, I would also, I prefer, although in England we don't have enough uh, sun, but if we can use whatever like today's sun, it would put lots of, just imagine the whole of Britain, if sunny, even one day, how much energy we will get. So I would say that 
second step should be also renewable energy. And those two together will be very good. And then everything should be cyclical. Our economy should be a cycle, not a linear economy. Take, use, throw away. Take, use, waste. C cyclical economy. That's another uh, important contribution you can make in order to mitigate the climate change. Everything that comes from nature should be used and then put it back on the compost, back on in the soil. So like in, the, in nature, you have fruit, you have leaves, you have wood, anything, it goes back into the soil and it becomes soil again. And so the cyclical economy where everything is coming from nature and going back into nature, if we can design that kind of economy, then I think we can have economy which will last not for five years or 50 years or 100 years or 500 years, but for millennia. Our economy has to be designed in such a way that it can last for millions of years to come. But our economy at the moment is so unsustainable, we are only thinking about five years profit um, of few years. So that long-term view requires cyclical economy. So that's a third aspect of climate crisis. But I would say again, start with your food. Food is the first step. With the climate emergency, the, the advice from many scientists is we have, I, I believe, about 12 years to try and turn things around and try and slow down the, the emergency. Yeah. Um, it's it's wonderful to be here tonight and to have 50 or 60 people listening. I wish that we were at Wembley Stadium with 100,000 people listening. Um, do you think we can do enough in those 12 years or so to, to really stop this? Or, or how, how positive do you feel that things are changing for the better currently? Yes. Um, to be an activist, you have to be an optimist. A pessimist can't be an activist. So I am an optimist because I'm an activist. I started activism like Greta Thunberg when I was 18 years old. I left the monast monastic order and joined the activist movement of Mahatma Gandhi. So from the age 18 until I'm now 83, I am an activist and I go with optimism and hope. <coughs> and my optimism comes because suddenly in the last two or three years, tremendous awareness has risen in our society, around the world. Um, the governments, they failed to agree anything in Kyoto. They failed to agree in Copenhagen. They failed to agree in many, many other places. But in last year in Paris, 200 nations came together to say, yes, climate is the real cha challenge and problem as a man-made, human-made, and we can do something. And let us have a target of no more than this percentage. So, and now, suddenly, you can see David Attenborough, who was, on, on our BBC um, uh, television for many, many years, was very reluctant. He was a very scientific and a very kind of uh, technical knowledge of, of uh, nature uh, he was giving. And a wonderful, amazing pictures and amazing information, but very little um, uh, uh, things he said about environment. But now he has come out with a great uh, strength and energy. At age 90, he's speaking up. Uh, for the environment. And then young girl from Sweden, Greta Thunberg, she's speaking for future generations. And in between all the ages of people, um, Extinction Rebellion 
and, and a parliament declaring climate change as one of the big issues and it's a kind of emergency, climate emergency. So all these things gave me hope that awareness is changing. And as I said in your answering your question, once our awareness and attitude and mind change, action will change, behavior will change. So everybody's now becoming aware that what kind of food I'm eating. Now, if you go to shops, you can say, I'm taking my own bag, I'm not taking plastic, and they will understand. They will not think you are stupid, um, kind of, what's the point? So this awareness is rising. And, and my belief is that in next 10 or 12 years or 15 years, big change is coming. Like uh, how the British Empire came to, came to an end, how the apartheid came to an end, how Berlin Wall came to an end. I think the big change is in the offing and we all have to be part of it and play our role in it. And this is why I, in my book I say, let's start with ourselves and then communicate our ideas to other people. There's no good just I'm good, I'm vegetarian, I'm doing yoga, I'm meditation, that's enough. No, not enough. Be an activist, be the change and communicate the change. And then organize the change. Like on the uh, 20th of September, uh, the, the young boys and girls, uh, Greta Thunberg and all the other school strikes and um, uh, fri future, Friday for the future, uh, they're all asking adults to join them and have a worldwide awareness day and a, and a, and a marching and protesting day um, about reminding people that climate crisis is everybody's crisis, not problem of uh, rich countries or poor countries or, or European countries or American or Asian. Everybody, whole of humanity is in it. And, and that kind of call is a wonderful uh, step in the right direction. So I am hopeful. And whatever happens, we have to act. Whether we get any result or not, it's not in our hand. Universe has the results in the hands of the universe. So we trust, we have a faith, and we have optimism, we have a hope, we act, and act today. Not tomorrow, but today. Every day we act and we contribute by living simply, communicating, and organizing. So be the change, communicate the change, organize the change, and we, there's a hope. Yeah. As long alongside the beauty and the unity that you see in nature, yeah. and you explain a lot. Yeah. Um, if you look closely, there's also quite a lot of violence and uh, cruelty in nature between animals. And yes, I'm just wondering where you kind of see that fits into your kind of the world vision, really. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, it's a kind of um, Gaia and the universe and the cosmic organization works on a very long scale. So like earthquakes and tsunamis and that kind of cruelty um, that you can see, um, we don't know what the effects of that are and what is the necessity of that is. This is not in our control. Um, so we have to see, say that there is some sort of cosmic plan of evolution which we don't understand. It's a little mystery how nature works. It's a bit of mystery. Science tried to understand and tried to explain as much as they can, but still a lot of questions are unanswered. 
Then on a smaller scale, like animals eating other animals and sort of cruelty of animals and so on, that's on a very small scale and only for food that they have to... to but cruelty of humans is much worse than cruelty of nature. Nature has never produced a nuclear weapon. Nature has never created a Hiroshima. Nature has never created a, a climate change like uh, uh, humans are creating. So, uh, and the wars, the First World War, the Second World War, the concentration camps, uh, the kind of uh, millions of people killed under many, many other disguises, uh, communism or other revolutions and so on. So, I think humans seem to be much more uh, cruel. But at the same time, we have a counter, uh, counter uh, to that cruelty. And you have Jesus Christ, you have the Buddha, you have Muhammad, you have St. Francis, you have Mahatma Gandhi, you have Mother Teresa, you have Hildegard of Bingen, you have so much love and compassion and kindness and generosity and millions of billions of mothers looking after their babies and billions of teachers teaching children and doctors looking after children and nurses looking after um, uh, babies and, 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 uh, and the sick people. All that is a counter to that. So the kind of yin-yang balance in the world. Um, world is not made of just kind of nice, nice, nice things. World is made of dark and light. World is made of uh, kindness and, and, and cruelty. That's a reality. But if you take as a whole nature and humanity together, as a whole, I would say compassion, love, kindness, generosity, a sense of service, sense of mutuality, sense of reciprocity, these are bigger forces and much more um, ruling power, ruling forces than cruelty. How much anger do you get in? You have anger, I have anger, but how much time we spend in our anger? Maybe five minutes, ten minutes, one day, uh, a week, but then much more time we spend in love, loving each other, much more time we spend in friendship than in quarrel and argument and, 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 uh, and, and a fear and a kind of mistrust. So the negative qualities are there. I'm not denying them. There is anger, there is a fear, there is a cruelty, but the power of love and the presence of love and the enormity of love and compassion and kindness and mutuality is much bigger and much greater. So let us all humans have this evolutionary power and we should cultivate like the Buddha and Jesus and, and Mother Teresa and many, many others have taught us. Let's cultivate that power of love and compassion more and, 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 and see nature I mean, land is producing food for, for uh, un number, uh, uncountable number of species and sustaining them. That's the compassion of nature. Trees are giving fruit to sustain birds and bees and wasps and humans and animals all around the world, every season. There are, so how much nature is giving us the, the benevolence of nature, the benevolence of universe. The sun is shining to keep us warm. The rain is coming free of charge to every home to give us water to uh, quench our thirst. The, the positive power and positive forces of nature is much more enormous and greater than cruelty that you are talking about. So yes, it is there, but let's focus on the good side of nature and good side of humanity and increase it 
more and more so that we can be much more in harmony, at ease with ourselves, with our fellow human beings and with nature. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, you really are an inspiration, I think, to all of us. And uh, I also agree with you. We're very lucky. Hackfield is a magical place and we're all very lucky to have it on our doorstep to learn the principles. Um, my question is about ambition versus service. And I think in the Western world and in British education, we're taught about ambition through our schools, through exams, and ambition is success, money is success, as you, as you said before. How can we teach younger generations that service is success? Um, and, uh, you know, as you are 83 years old, you've given your life very much to service. And for me, that truly is success. How can we share that and not kind of be con so concentrated on ambition? Very good, very good question. Uh, I'm very interested in education. And, uh, and my feeling is that at the moment, our education is focused on three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, and that's not even three R's. We need to replace that three R's into three H's, head, heart, and hands. Every school curriculum should include some academic knowledge, history, geography, science, etc., and some spiritual knowledge of heart, cultivating courage, trust, service, a sense of service, compassion, love, good feeling, taking care of each other, respecting each other. All these things have to be learned. So heart should be brought into our education. Without that, just head, head, head. We are not only head. We have a wonderful head, of course. We must think. We must learn to think. But thinking is not enough. We also have to bring feeling. And a service comes from good feeling. Love comes from feeling. Compassion comes from feeling. So heart, courage comes from feeling. So heart, cultivating heart in our education. Every school curriculum should have a time to teach children how to be kind and compassionate and serve each other and take care of each other and take care of the planet Earth and take care of animals and take care of trees and take care of everything. Heart. And then hands. We don't teach our children how to make something. We have just become consumers. Just buy, go and buy everything. You don't make it. People don't know how to cook. People don't know how to grow food. People don't know how to build a house. People don't know how to make furniture. We don't teach our children to use hands. And hands are a miraculous gift to the world, to us, to everybody. These two hands are miracle makers. And we don't use them. We only use two thumbs to, for our smartphone. And what else? Computers, uh, keyboard. That's not enough. We should be able to make something. We are not consumers. Our children are not consumers. They are makers. They are poets. They are artists. They have imagination. They have creativity. They can learn skills. So teaching children skills of living, mending, building, growing, all those skills, any skills. And, and art, of course, playing music is a wonderful skill. And dancing, beautiful skill. And, and um, all the arts and crafts. Arts and crafts, I'm grateful of William Morris, the crafts movement. And so if we can bring that in education, 
That's how we change, just for this idea of success and me, me, my success, and, and, and at the expense of everybody else, comes because of our head only, and no heart and no hands. But I always say that la- rather than seeking success, we should teach children to seek fulfillment, contentment, to be happy by doing something which is beautiful, which is useful, which is durable, which helps other people. If we can teach that, then happiness does not come from success. Happiness comes from fulfillment, contentment, joy, and those are heart qualities. So let's bring in education head, heart, and hands instead of three hours only. Reading arithmetic, good. I'm not denying it. Important, but not enough. We need to bring feeling and making into education. Thank you. Really wonderful evening. I love the idea of elegant simplicity. Mm-hmm. This feels like a cultural revolution and um, a new cultural revolution. And what is, is the population a problem? Have we got too many people or not enough? Hmm. Population is an important question. <coughs> and we need to, in my lifetime, we have doubled, more than doubled our population from three, four billion to seven, eight billion now. So I think it is very important to bring the education among our young people, especially, to think in terms of that we don't need big families anymore, especially in, uh, around the world, Asia, Africa, China. In China, they had one child policy, but now they are sort of shifting back uh, from that. So yes, in our education, as I said, um, about head, heart, and hands, we should also bring the question of environment, question of climate, question of population, question of how, because if we go on, increasing the numbers of people in the world and go on increasing consumption and start to live the lifestyle of Europeans and Americans and Japanese. One person in Bangladesh, what one person consumes in Bangladesh and what uh, people in Western countries consume, if you compare that, it's three, four times more in European countries. So if we, if all seven billion people in the world lived that kind of wasteful, pollutant, uh, extravagant, uh, consumerist lifestyle, we will need not one planet, but three planets, four planets. We haven't got three or four planets. We have only one planet. There's no planet B. So we need to reduce our numbers and we need to live frugally and simply so that others may simply live and we uh, share our wealth with all other people so that everybody has food, clothes, housing, good, elegant life, but no waste, no pollution, no extravagance, no uh, uh, stuff cluttering our homes unnecessarily and unused. If we can have that kind of consciousness, then I think population and consumption pattern in balance together, we can create a better future for humanity and for the planet Earth. Okay. So. Yes, Satish, you you talk about less uh, 
is better. But tonight, clearly, we want more of you. And I know that everyone will join me in thanking you for such an amazing evening. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was an episode of the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. You can find out more about the Assembly by visiting the Heckfield Place website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Heckfield underscore place and the hashtag Heckfield Place. Thanks for listening. Thank you.